reading the New York Times uh, weekend edition last Sunday, and they had a an article that really caught my attention. Uh, it's about uh, skyscrapers, uh, tall buildings, super talls, as they're they're called today. Um, you know, we think uh, Sears Tower or the uh, what's the one, the Empire State Building. The tallest tower in the world today is the Taipei 101. This is in Taiwan. And the roof is 1,474 feet tall. That's actually, what, 23 feet or so taller than the Sears Tower. You know, when these guys make their plans, they're, they're kind of leapfrogging, making sure they're taller than the next tallest one. The pinnacle, and of course these guys cheat, you know, when they build these towers because to gain additional height, there's the roof level, but then they put the antennas and the rest of the, I suppose maybe it's all antennas, up to gain additional height. So for instance, the Sears Tower in Chicago, the antennas, the pinnacle of the buildings, actually taller than the Taipei 101. That's 1,729 feet and 108 floors. These are big, big towers. The Patronus Towers in Malaysia, there's a Sean Connery movie that involves these towers if you've seen it. Uh, the tallest side-by-side -side are Twin Towers in Malaysia, 1,322 feet to the top of the roof, 88 floors tall. The height of these, and going back to the Empire State Building, by the way, is the sound okay? Is this too loud? Are we good? Okay. Um, the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building in New York were built in 1930 and 31. And then seeing the Empire State Building is 1,250 feet tall, in 1931 compared to say the Taipei, which is more recent, or the Sears Tower. I mean, it puts in perspective how really, really big it was in its day, how tall it was. So these are huge, huge towers. Now, as tall as these are, do you know there's a building today under construction in Dubai? It's called the Dubai, uh, the Burj Dubai. Now, they're not actually letting this out, but I suppose, you know, as construction goes along, nothing's left to the imagination. You just count the floors and do the geometry, I suppose, and figure out how tall it is. But this super tall in Dubai, their, their conjecturing is going to be 160 floors tall, and it will be over 2,600 feet tall. It's half, it'll be half a mile high. So a super tall is considered a building over a thousand feet. You know, skyscrapers are tall, but super talls are a thousand feet tall or taller. So this will be this will be a thousand feet taller than the next tallest building. This will be two super talls minimum, stacked one on top of the other. This is mind blowing. This one's under construction today, so you can see pictures of this online. Now the article also mentioned this though. There are plans a little bit more secret than this. Uh, because, you know, if you can do it, I can do it better. So there's a prince in Saudi Arabia in, with the oil petrodollars, you know, limitless basically. And the thought is that in Jeddah, the super tall, super tall that's being planned for Jeddah is projected to be over one mile high into the sky. So it'll be twice the height of the building that's two and a half super talls now over a mile high. <laughs> you know, if you think of football fields or city blocks and you think that's going up into the sky, it's mind-boggling. I mean, if you go to Chicago today or New York and you look up, it's mind-boggling, the height already. These would make the super talls look like pygmies. 
the one that's being planned. What's behind the height of these buildings or the size of these buildings? You know, if you think, man, the cost and the time and why, why would you bother building up that high? You guys know if you go to Chicago or New York, there's no place to build out. You know, if you're going to build in the city, the only place you've got available is the air literally above you. So you build up. Bethany and I were in Chicago in March and a new Trump Towers is going up there right on the canal. And you can see why they build high there because there's just no place else to go. So you grab the air, literally the air above you for the space you want. But I don't think that's quite the issue in the uh, sands of the Middle East, do you? Uh, so there's probably, it's probably not just a space issue once we start building in the ra- uh, relatively unpopulated areas of the Middle East. Probably some, some pride or some, some brag factors start coming into play. Uh, Psalm 49 says this about men and the things they build, thinking of significance and pride. Psalm 49.11 reads, Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, or we might say their buildings, and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. In other words, this is what I've produced, and this is my lasting impact on the world. This is my significance, this thing that I've left behind me that exists after my life is gone. Uh, skyscrapers, when we're talking about super talls and the skyscraper-sized buildings, we're talking about a fairly recent phenomenon, though, because if you go back ancient times, really up until about 100 years ago, uh, the building products we use limit how big a building could get, how tall up it could get. So in the days of masonry construction, we could build buildings, and I think the tallest one in the world was, I think in Chicago again, was about 500 feet tall. And by any stretch, 500 feet tall is still immense, a structure up in the sky of 500 feet. But when they started using steel in the late 1800s and they found out they could go a lot higher, that's what started skyscrapers. And then today they're using reinforced concrete, and that's the construction material that allows them to build as high as they are today. Now, of course, if you go back in time, you think historically, before the days of, of tall masonry construction or skyscrapers, as we're talking this morning, then you go back to the tallest structures on the earth were, do you know, kids, do you remember what the tallest man-made structures on the earth would have been in ancient times? They would have been pyramids. And ziggurats are kind of like pyramids. We'll talk about both briefly here. The tallest structure in the world, by the way, for almost 4,000 years, that's pretty impressive, was the Great Pyramid at Giza. And remember the pyramids, these would have been smooth-sided, some of them were three-sided, some were four-sided, smooth-sided tombs, basically. So the pyramids really, it's a headstone, right? It's a tombstone. The Great Pyramid at Giza for Pharaoh Khufu stood about 470 feet tall. Uh, Each of its four-sided bases uh, over 750 feet long. And by the way, if you ever study this stuff, the accuracy of the pyramids. Uh, they knew pi before anybody in the Western world thought anyone knew what the, the math value pi was because the pyramid, this pyramid, is all based around the value pi. Um, anyway, it's within, fract- it's within millimeters of perfect level. It's within millimeters of perfect dimensions and length. By the way, it's set up. This has nothing to do with anything, but I love the pyramids. Uh, they wondered why the arrangement of the pyramids in this area in, in uh, Egypt, why they three, three pyramids in a line that weren't quite perfect. And, and the Great Pyramid, what was its relationship? 
uh, you know, the stars move over time, but they conjectured that back when these were built, this was a perfect proportional representation of the great hunter of Orion. The star um, constellation Orion is perfectly represented by these pyramids. But anyway, until the Lincoln Cathedral was built in England around 1300, from 2500 BC on, this pyramid in Egypt was the tallest man-made structure on the earth, almost 4,000 years. Pretty hard to believe. The ziggurats were the Babylonian and actually also used similar structure in Central and South America. That is, instead of a smooth-sided pyramid with a peak on top, the ziggurats were stair-step structures, and they weren't tombs. They were solid construction because the point was what was on top. So the ziggurats were, were smaller ascending stairs or platforms up to an elevated platform top, and the whole point of the ziggurat was the temple was on top. So pyramids were tombstones, ziggurats were temples or a landing place, if you will, for the temples. In fact, it's funny, the, the old Led Zeppelin song, Stairway to Heaven, the ziggurats were thought to be literally a stairway to heaven, and that informed in part their construction so that man would, would walk up the stairs to heaven to meet the gods, and the gods would walk down from the heavens to meet man on these ziggurat, on these ancient platforms. We are in Genesis 11, all this by way to say, we're in Genesis 11 today when men got together to build an early tall tower, their version of a superstructure. And it's the city, in the city, that Ham's descendant Nimrod built and the tower that got God's attention. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, is where we'll be parked. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And by the way, remember that we just read that Noah's descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, are going to repopulate the earth. And we've read about their families and some of their descendants and how they're starting to spread out. And this is where we pick up that story. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, or Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So briefly, the story, some of Noah's descendants start spreading out. They go east. They stop. They say to one another, looks like a good spot. Let's build a city and a tower. And that's our story. And God says, I've got a problem with this. And I'm thinking, well, what, what's the problem? Is God opposed to cities? Or is God opposed to towers? What's, what's at issue here? By the way, this is often the case that something that to our eyes initially looks uh, like there's no issues involved, oftentimes there is. They're just behind the scenes, and we've got to dig a little deeper to say what, what is going on. The first thing is this. 
In the original creation account in the garden, when God spoke to Adam and Eve, he told them he wanted them to do something. And he said in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill up the earth, all the earth with life. Well, then, of course, along comes the flood. Later, mankind's population is wiped out besides Noah and his descendants. God says the same thing after the flood. His intention remained the same. So in Genesis 9, 1 and 9, 7, God said again, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And verse 7, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So in God's economy, what he was telling Noah and his descendants to do was to spread out over all the earth and fill it up with life. Have people fill up all the earth with life. This group that went to the plains of Shinar, though, said, verse 4, Come, let us build a city and a tower. Let's make ourselves a name so that we aren't scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. God said, basically, scatter and fill. This group says, no, we're not going to scatter. We're going to huddle together, provide our own security. And before I forget, um, it's often how uh, you see tie-ins in one story to another in the scriptures. And just listen to the key elements of the story we're in this morning. Uh, Someone moves to the east. They build a city. They work hard. They're very industrious. They produce things. And they're connected to a descendant known for violence. Do these elements sound familiar? Because from Genesis 4, this is Cain's story. It's the same story. If you remember, Cain moved to the east, built a city. It's his descendants that start metallurgy and production kind of on the lines we think of as modern. And his, his descendant, Lamech, is a guy given to violence, just like Nimrod. So we have the same elements of the story, and probably more so than we do. When the Jews heard this, they get it, that... These are the same elements of the story. It's, it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's the wrong person doing wrong. It's the same pattern of someone at odds with God building a city according to their thoughts. In other words, living a life alienated from God. We see the same thing in the story this morning. So God's purpose for Noah's descendants was to scatter over all the earth and then fill it up with life. So the people who built Babel, Babel didn't want to scatter and think of it, for them, the the thought was probably frightening. Um, If I scatter out, I feel less secure, and I probably feel less significant. But if I huddle together, I've got the strength of my neighbors and maybe my relatives that I'm with. I feel more secure. I feel more significant. I feel safer. So at this level, the problem with Babel, with the city, with the towers, that it was man's version of man's plan for himself. So it's not that a city is inherently wrong. God builds a city, Jerusalem. It's not that a tower was inherently wrong because a space or a thing is is amoral within itself. It's neither good nor bad. Everything God created was good. But it's this thought that man, in contradiction to what God wants for him, is saying, I've got a better plan, and I'm going to do it my way. And this is what my way looks like. Now, it's funny and it's easy to miss these in the story, by man's standard, this work would have been very, very impressive. And remember, there would have been nothing like this in the earth at this time. To build a tower, and we assume this tower was a ziggurat-type structure because it's what you see afterwards in this part of the world. But when this was being built, this city and this tower, they would have been the most impressive thing on the earth, impressive man-made area on the earth. So that if you'd walked up and seen that, you would have been highly impressed. So here's the city, here's all these 
people collectively working together, and here this structure is rising higher and higher into the sky, it would have been impressed. We would have been impressed. But in the text, God is not impressed. So, for instance, at verse 5, it says, God came down to see them. Man looks at this work, this city and this tower, and feels like, yes, this is it, this is impressive, this is meaningful, this is significant. Now, God's omniscient, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, and he knows everything. So it's not that God was learning something that he didn't know before, but the thought is this. From heaven's perspective, this magnificent trophy to man's accomplishment was insignificant, so insignificant in heaven's eyes, heaven had to stoop down low just to see it. It's as if the, the tower that impressed man, it was just a pimple on the earth to God. He says, it's so small, I've got to bend down just to see that it's there. Or also, in Babylonian, Babel meant the house or the gate of God. Babel is the house or the gate of God. But in Hebrew, the word that sounds similar to Babel means gibberish or confusion. So when the Hebrews read this, they understood also that what for man was significant, the place of God, God says, no, it's a place of confusion and gibberish. God, man's doing his best to be impressive and significant, and God says it's a joke. It's a poor joke at that. It's interesting, too, and we've mentioned this, but Babel is the city. This area was the city of Babylon. And Babylon becomes the archetype, the, the picture of man's opposition in the earth to God throughout the rest of the Bible. And it goes right through to Revelation 17 and 18 when an angel announces the destruction of Babylon. But later, one incident alone, later in the same city, in the same place, in Daniel 5, Belshazzar the king is sitting in Babylon the Great. And if you remember, the walls that surrounded Babylon the Great were considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. And it was considered that Babylon was so well fortified by these huge, immense, impressive walls that no one could ever defeat someone who was sitting in the city of Babylon. But do you remember that God, a hand comes out and writes on a wall and they grab this old, old Jewish prophet and say, what does this mean? And he says, you've been measured and found wanting and your kingdom is being given tonight into the hands of another man. Well, Belshazzar is throwing a party because he feels invincible within these walls. This trophy demands accomplishment, this, this huge city of Babylon with its great walls. And of course, that night, he dies because the Medes and the Persians who were outside the city while the party was being thrown, they diverted the river and they went through the river of the sluice gates and took the city that night. But Babel, Babylon, becomes the picture of man's work, religious or otherwise, as opposed to God and God's work on the earth. And you see this throughout the scripture. No matter how great the work appears to us, if man did it in his own energy and his own power to God, it is insignificant. It's without any lasting meaning at all. And the reverse is also true, though. Think of this, that God's plans, even if they appear insignificant to man and to all the rest of the world, if God is in it, it's significant. And it has eternal purpose and value. So that if you're part of what God's doing, even if it doesn't look impressive to the world around you, that work will last. Compared with the most impressive work on the earth today, won't last. What man creates in and of himself will not last the fires of judgment, as it were, when God consumes the planet in fire. 
This is just this great reminder that God's ways are different than our ways. Babylon is man on his own trying to achieve salvation and significance and security. And God says you've got it all wrong. And everything you do, all the ways you try to do this to affect the same thing, they're all wrong-headed because they're not based in God himself. And think of this. In Babel, you see man's idea of connecting with God and with heaven is to build this huge, impressive stairway, literally, up into the sky. Collectively, everybody bands together, we build this impressive stairway into the sky so that we can meet heaven and gain security and significance. But when God shows a man later in in Genesis how to get to heaven, it's Jacob lying on the ground by himself with a rock for his pillow, and God shows a ladder going up from Jacob to heaven. Totally unimpressive by Babylonian standards. But this was the real deal. The ladder to heaven, that was God, shown to one man. Or think of this too. The men at Babel, they were all banding together because they thought corporately their strength and their ability to work together, this would would be the place that God would meet with men. They would be impressive and they would become the dwelling place for God. But later when God picks a people to meet with, what does he do? He chooses one guy. He doesn't choose a nation, impressive or not. He chooses one guy, and this guy has no children. He's childless, Abraham. And he says, this is my man, this is my work on the earth. Sorry, compared to Babel, what God was doing looked ridiculous. It looked insignificant, but it was the real deal. So Babylon represented man's efforts at achieving significance and salvation. God does things topsy-turvy, upside down, and yet, because it's God, It has real significance, real value, and it lasts. If you notice in this passage too, uh, man spoke first, but God has the final say. Man spoke first, God has the final say. Verse 3, they said, come, let us make bricks. Verse 4, they said, come, let us build a city and a tower. And then verse 6, the Lord said, well, let us confuse their language. This is one more of those reminders. Man proposes... But God disposes, we make our plans as if we actually can control the future, and God blows on it, and all those plans go the way of the wind. They're gone. There's this kind of insanity that, that as humans we tend to entertain that, that we can, transient human beings like we are, you know, we're on this earth for a while. David says our, our life is measured in breaths. You know, we take a few breaths, we're here, and then we're gone. We think, though, that we can determine the future or that we can lay out the way things are. We say to ourselves or we say to each other, but if God's opposed to that, God just blows and and those plans are dust in the wind. We cannot, man, in our own power, we cannot do anything of lasting value. God, even if it looks insignificant, what God's doing will last. Another point here is that when God came down and confused the languages, it was a judgment on one hand. It was also an act of mercy on the other. Think of this. In Genesis 6, when man's evil has run rampant, God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to judge man on the earth, and my judgment is going to be this. I'm going to bring a cataclysmic worldwide flood, and I'm going to rid the earth of all human life other than Noah and his family. God comes down in judgment. He takes away all life on the earth except Noah and his family. 
And that was judgment. Mercy was Noah, and God's grace was, was displayed on Noah and his, his children, his, his family. Here, God comes down in judgment again, and he does judge by confusing the languages. It is a kind of judgment. But think of this, too. God had said that if we leave man to himself now, nothing will be impossible to him. And it's not that God was opposed to man advancing in some healthy or appropriate way. It's that man's descent into evil would be unchecked and unbridled. So the merciful aspect of this judgment God does in confusing the language is he retards or he slows the development of man's evil on the earth. Remember, before the flood, there wasn't that much time in which God said, every thought of man is evil continually, and the earth was characterized by violence. That was in a short window of time. Well, God looks at man afterwards and says basically the same thing. They're so committed to evil, this evil is going to blossom and flourish corporately so that by confusing language, what God did was he extended man's ability to live on the earth. He slowed the progress of our corruption, of our moral corruption. So on that hand, God requiring men to end up scattering and working in these smaller groups was actually an act of mercy because it slowed the progress of our own evil. I wonder today, too, if the earth isn't becoming a bit like Babel again. And I am thinking literally or physically of bigger and taller towers. You know, these, these memorials to our own self-importance. We are doing this big time. By the way, I didn't mention earlier, but I think there's 39 tall towers in the earth today that exist. They're built and they're completed, but there's 69 under construction. 69 under construction. Or I'm thinking of things, too. I'm thinking of science, genetic engineering, um, or if you think of the Holocaust and our, we're experimenting on each other or we're murdering people in groups. Um, I feel like the spirit of Babel is still alive and well in the world today so that whether it's tall towers or whether it's kind of a life just lived uh, in either ignorance or simply denying that God exists, the same kind of dynamics or spirit or or outlook on life are, are present with us today. In Luke 17, when Jesus describes the world that he comes back to, the thought is that it's given itself over to evil, that, it, that, that Christ is returning to a world that's not what it ought to be. But when you read the passage in Luke, it simply says they were marrying and they were giving in marriage. They were buying and they were selling. In other words, it describes life as you and I know it today. But the point was that when Christ comes back to the earth, the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of the earth comes back, people on the earth are living as, as if he does not exist. It's life without God. Can you imagine if you work and, and have built a home or buy a home and you fill it with good things and you fill the cupboards and the fridge and someone comes into your home and they eat your food and they sleep on your bed and and they never say hi to you, they never acknowledge that you're there. That's kind of the picture here. Babylon was man enjoying the things God had put on the earth for him as if God didn't exist. And Jesus says when he returns in Luke 17, that's what it will be like again. I think that's the direction we're headed today. I think the spirit of Babylon is still going on. God's work, though, just like later, we'll see, Genesis 12, God starts this story of Abraham. 
And you know, up to chapter 12, God's kind of shown us two lines, man's line and a line of promise, because God said he'd bring a Savior and a Messiah. So he's been faithful to show us the line of promise. He kind of leaves the other line in Genesis 12, and he takes Abraham, and the focus becomes on God and God's program from there on, throughout the rest of the Bible, really. Well, God's building program is still going on today, of course, as well. So God's building in the earth today. He's not building tall towers necessarily, but he is building a temple, and it's not on a ziggurat. It's not on top of a hill. It's not on top of something we create. But the scriptures say that God, by the Spirit, is, is working with what he calls in 1 Peter 2 living stones, and he's putting them together in a temple. So God has a building project today. And people are being called in Revelation 5, 9, it says that Christ purchased people from every tribe, language, people group, and nation in his death and resurrection. So that today God has a building program. And the confusion that he brought about at Babel, he's actually in a sense reversing as he builds the church and calls people from all these variety of groups that sprang from this event thousands of years ago He's calling them all back together to himself in his building program, the church. And so when, when you and I are involved in pro, proclaiming Christ to others, or we're using the unique talents and gifts and callings God gives us, we're part of this eternal building program that God's part of today. And sometimes it does not look impressive. But Jesus said, if only two or three who know me gather together to my name, I'm there, I'm in their midst. I'm part of what's going on there. So God's building today, it's not a super tall, it's not the burge in the Middle East, but it's all over the world, men and women called to Christ are being formed into this new building, the temple, which he inhabits by his spirit. So there is a building program going on. And what this leads towards, Paul says in Romans 15, 5 and 6, Babel was man building but ignoring God. Paul says God's building program produces something, this, this unity for this purpose. Romans 15, 5 and 6, May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Christians with one voice, one tongue as it were, Languages multiplied and confused at Babel, but in Christ, everybody regains, as it were, one voice, one tongue, one language to declare God's praises, to worship the God who made the heavens and the earth and gives us life and breath. Let me wind down with this. In 1817, Percy Shelley wrote a short poem. The guy was an atheist, but he, he was a great poet. And one of his most memorable poets, uh, poems was written in, in 1817, and the, the catalyst for this poem was the fact that a colossal statue from Egypt had been found and was supposedly being brought to England. And the statue, this, this piece actually of a statue, the, the torso up, was of a guy named Ozymandias. That was the Greek name given to him. We would know him by the name Ramses II. And at the base of this statue uh, of of Ozymandias slash Ramses II was written this, King of kings am I, Ozymandias. If anyone would know how great I am and where I lie, let him surpass one of my works. Let him see one of my works. Now, Ramses II, many think, was the pharaoh of the Exodus. Uh, I don't, but 
uh, if you hold to a late exodus, then Ramses II is your guy. Whether he was or not, Ramses II was the most powerful pharaoh in Egypt. And Egypt was at its heyday under his rule. He ruled longer than any other pharaoh. And it's his statue that Shelley heard about, and this was inscribed on it. So in his day, he was the most powerful man on the earth. And his statue said the same thing. And hearing about the statue, this, this is what Shelley wrote. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half shrunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing else remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. In Ramsey's day, he's the pinnacle of pinnacles. He's the power of all powers. And he says, look at me and tremble. But in Shelley's day, it's a stone statue in a barren wasteland with nothing left around it. And I love this, that his statue said, anyone who would know how great I am and where I lie. Now, no kidding. You can see Ramses II today. You can see literally where he lies because his dusty, corrupted, impotent mummy lies in the museum in Cairo today. So you've got this colossal statue declaring his praise and his might, and his rotting corpse lies in a museum in Egypt. And Shelley had it right. Look on my works in despair. But what's left of Ramses or Ozymandias today? Not much. What's left of his kingdom? Sand. Not much. Not much is there. You know, throughout the Bible, uh, one of the key verses in all the Bible, the verse that started the Reformation was, the just shall live by faith. Out of Romans, quoted from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And what you really see in Genesis whether it's Babel or Abraham, you see the call for men on this earth to live a life based on trusting God, lived by faith, a life lived on faith or by faith. What you had at Babel was the opposite, man on his own doing things as he saw fit, totally divorced and cut off from God. As Christians, we are called to live this life we live on this earth by faith, by trusting God. If you don't make up your mind that you are going to trust God in the vicissitudes of life, you probably won't. You'll do what those did at Babel. You'll look for some way that you can gather the troops or muster up your own courage or your own strength or whatever the resources or significance you think you need are versus trusting God to provide those for you. So I'd say one of the key applications for this in my mind is simply this. It's to make up my mind that I will live a life trusting God, that I will live a life marked by faith, by acknowledging God, that He is there, that He's my God, that He's redeemed me in Christ, that His Spirit's with me today, and that anything I need, if it's significance, if it's deliverance from something, if it's emotional, if it's spiritual, 
to decide that God is the resource that I look to, not myself or what I or others can come up with. That I'm committed to living a life trusting God, resting on Him and His power. The corollary to that is to refuse to make the world standards or even your own standards the measure of success. If if true success is measured by name recognition, you know, most of us will have no success in life, right? Or if true success is how much money we have in a bank account or how big literally the buildings are that we put up, how many of us are going to succeed? Heaven looks down at those things and says, they're pimples, they're anthills, they're insignificant in heaven's eyes. But you and I, we can occupy the, the lowliest position on earth. We can occupy a corner of the world and in God's eyes have more significance, more worth, more value in our work than the most powerful kings who rule the earth today or in millennia behind us. So the corollary is refuse to use the world standard as your measure of success. God doesn't measure success typically by numbers or bank accounts, those kinds of things but by obedience and faithfulness. And, you know, and all, all the time when you read these uh, Bible stories, we read them dispassionately from a distance, and it's easy to say, those guys are so wrong-headed, look at what they did. But, but think of this, those folks in Babel, all they wanted were the same things, frankly, most of us in this room want, right? They just wanted a good meal, a nice house, a nice car or chariot, as it were. You know, they just wanted a nice life. That's what they were after, I'm sure. No different than we are. We're faced with the same temptations today they were. The challenge is, is to say, Lord, we want to do things your way, trusting in you instead of taking up things our way, producing something by our own strength or our own power. Let's pray. Lord, I remember the phrase that uh, one with you is a majority. That is, Lord, whatever you're about in the earth, uh, that's the program we want to be hooked up with. Father, it is so easy in the lives we live to grow envious of the possession or success others have or to feel like failures because we're not better known or more handsome or more lovely, whatever standards the world or our own minds come up with. Lord, help us to be like the patriarch Abraham, who we'll start reading about soon, a guy who walked with you, went where you asked him to go, and trusted you. Lord, we face the same challenges today in this time in the earth we live that they did in the days of Babel. Lord, help us to willingly... um, with all that we are, be part of what you're doing in the earth today. Help us to live with reckless, as it were, faith, entrusting ourselves to you. And Lord, looking for reward in heaven where real significance, real value lies, not worrying too much about the tally on earth, Lord, but committing our ways to you and being faithful to you in all the ways we know to on this time you give us on the earth. Lord, I know that's where significance lies tied to you, knowing you, the true God. In Jesus' name, amen.